0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Jesse Powell, and we want to welcome you to another Providence Grand Rounds, jointly between St. Vincent and Providence, Portland. And this morning we have the uh, a very special treat because we're celebrating the Gilbert Lipschitz Memorial Lectureship. And uh, I'm going to give a little bit back, a little bit of background on the lectureship, and then introduce our speaker this morning, Susan Coven. Uh, Dr. Lipschutz was Born and educated in Philadelphia, and he moved to Oregon in 1974, did his residency, chief residency, and a fellowship in gastroenterology at OHSU. And then he joined the Gastroenterology Clinic, which then became the Oregon Clinic, where he was quickly recognized as one of the premier gastroenterologists in Portland. He served as the president of the Oregon Society of Internal Medicine. And during his time at Providence Portland Medical Center, He was Teacher of the Year in 84-85 and Internist of the Year from 87 and 88. He had an enthusiasm and a zest for life that carried over into his medical career. He listened keenly to colleagues and patients, and it was for his passion in medicine and teaching and for his great humanity that we named an annual Grand Rounds Lectureship in Dr. Lipschitz's honor and continuing the legacy of uh, remarkable and amazing speakers for this lectureship. I'm so pleased today to introduce Dr. Coven. Uh, Dr. Coven received her bachelor's in arts in English literature from Yale and a medical degree from Johns Hopkins. She also holds a master of fine arts in nonfiction from the Bennington writing seminars. After a residency training and chief residency in medicine at Johns Hopkins, she joined the faculty of Harvard Medical School and practiced primary care, internal medicine at Mass General for over 30 years. She's an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and holds the Valerie Winchester Family Endowed Chair in primary care medicine at Mass General. In 2019, she was named inaugural writer in residence at Mass General. Her essays, articles, blogs, and reviews have appeared in the Boston Globe, the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, NewYorker.com, Psychology Today, the LA Review of Books, the Virginia Quarterly, Stats and other publications. Her monthly column, In Practice, appeared in the Boston Globe and won the Will Solamine Award for Excellence in Medical Writing from the American Medical Writers Association. Dr. Coven co-directs the Media and Medicine Program at Harvard Medical School and speaks to a wide variety of audiences on literature and medicine and the role of women in medicine. Her book, Letter to a Young Female Physician, was published in 2021. It's a collection of essays that immediately Captured the attention of our planning committee. Uh, The personal essays about our own experiences are insightful and compelling and capture the exhilaration and agony of medicine in a way that reminds you why you were in this endeavor in the first place. Uh, It's a book that is applicable and insightful, insightful for all kinds of doctors, including the not so young or female such as myself. Dr. Coven, we are so beyond happy you could join us remotely. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and for that kind introduction, Dr. Powell, and greetings from a very cold uh, day here in Boston. Um, when, uh, when I'm asked to give a named lectureship, I like to learn a little something uh, about the person for whom the lectureship is named. Uh, you have um, uh, spoken a bit about uh, Dr. Lipschitz's Uh, illustrious career. Uh, I learned uh, in my Googling that he was uh, truly a a beloved uh, gastroenterologist uh, in Portland for many years until his untimely passing at the age of 50. Um, The thing I learned about him though, uh, that really endeared him to me, I learned from the Amherst College uh, alumni uh, magazine. Uh, this is what uh, his roommates said about him uh, in memoriam. Uh, Gill had an almost religious commitment to becoming a physician, which was fortunate because if you had limited gifts for science, some monastic commitment to the task was necessary. Although Gill was not science averse, uh, he was not directly descended from Madame Curie either. He understood, however, that the front door to the hospital lay somewhere behind the wonders of chemistry. Well, this endeared me to him because it reminded me so much of myself. Uh, As you've heard, I was an English major. Uh, I also could not count Madame Curie uh, among my ancestors. Uh, And uh, as I have often said, uh, I learned more reading novels and poetry as an undergraduate uh, that I've applied in my career as a primary care internist than I ever learned in organic chemistry, which though I did get an A in it, I never really knew what it was um, and don't really to this day. And so here I am uh, in the front row of this uh, rather male uh, picture. This is uh, the spring of 1990, the end of my year uh, as a chief resident at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I'm rocking my bad 80s hair and my big shoulder pads under my long white coat. Uh, And if you had asked me what was going on at this point in my life, I would have said this was a culmination of a choice I had made a few years earlier. Uh, I had been an English major, I loved literature, but I thought, well, if I'm going to be a doctor, I'll have to leave all that behind. Uh, I chose to be uh, a science person, not a literature person, uh, and um, I was at that age where you think you can only be one kind of person. Uh, It took me decades to realize that that was wrong, that not only uh, were uh, science, uh, uh, medicine and literature compatible, in some ways they could be seen as the same thing in that they're both rooted in storytelling. And so it wasn't until middle age that I took up a second career uh, as a professional writer. I don't even like to call it a second career because uh, it seems uh, to me, uh, as I say, really so sort of consistent uh, with medical practice. After all, we don't call it storytelling, but on grand rounds, on morning rounds, at uh, noon report, uh, we are always telling stories, and certainly our patients are always telling us stories. Now, I do a lot of writing coaching, and I'd like to begin this talk by giving you, if you're an aspiring writer, uh, to the best piece of writing advice I know, uh, which is not write what you know, that's the standard advice, but rather um, write what you want to know. And write what you want to know about very tiny moments. I call these unstable moments. Moments of confusion, moments where you think, you know, why do I think that's funny and no one else does? Or I think that's sad and no one else does. Why did I react that way? Why do we do things this way? And right into that question. If you don't know the answer, all the better. If you already know the answer, don't bother. The piece will be dead in the water. Anyway, One such unstable moment came to me in late June of 2016. I was asked to supervise an orientation exercise for incoming medical interns at Mass General. The exercise uh, consisted of this. we um, we asked the interns to write a letter to their future selves. The letters were then collected, they were sealed, and they would be handed back uh, to the interns six months later. When in the dead of winter, they would all be bussed out to um, Cape Cod for a retreat. Well, I will tell you, I was a little grumpy about the whole thing. Um, for one thing, uh, I hadn't. Uh, designed this exercise. It seemed a little hokey to me. Uh, I had been asked to do it at the last minute. I had had to reschedule the start of a vacation. So I was a little grumpy and a little eye-rolly. And then came the moment. I looked around the table. I noticed that most or more than half of the incoming interns were women and all of a sudden I felt kind of choked up and I thought, wait a minute, where is that coming from? Why does this move me? I'd been writing long enough at this point to know that I had to write to find the answer. And I did write. What I did was I wrote a letter to myself 30 years to the day, just about, earlier when I started my internship. Um, I wrote that piece. I called it letter to a young female physician of the young female physician being my former self. And it was published uh, in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine the following year. It seems to have touched some kind of nerve. Uh, It's been accessed about 300,000 times at this point, it was picked up by the lay press, um, and um, I got a lot of of mail about it. So what was it I wanted to say to my former self? Well, a couple of things. The first thing I wanted to say uh, is that in 2017 as it was then nearing the end of my career female physicians earn on average twenty thousand less uh, twenty thousand dollars less than our male counterparts uh, that's even accounting for um, part-time work and so forth we're still underrepresented in leadership positions even in specialties like OBGYN, gyn uh, in which we're a majority Still subjected to sexual harassment, ranging from unwelcome bro humor in operating rooms and on hospital rounds to abuse so severe, it causes some women to leave medicine altogether. But I had another message too, something a little bit more personal. I said there's a more insidious obstacle that you'll have to contend with, one that resides in your own head In fact, one of the greatest hurdles you confront may be one largely of your own making. At least that has been the case for me. You see, I've been haunted at every step of my career by the fear that I am a fraud. It started, I think, as early as childhood, uh, as a a bright young girl uh, growing up um, in uh, a house with uh, brothers, Uh, with a dad who was a doctor, a mom who was a housewife. Um, It seemed to me that my options were sort of arrayed uh, before me. I didn't really like what I perceived as my options. Uh, And so I decided there was something clearly wrong with me. This reached its apex in medical school because after all, in high school and college, you can study enough to sort of swallow a course whole. This was not true in medical school. You could study 24 7 and never be done. And um, as many uh, mnemonics as I memorized, uh, I-, I still uh, didn't feel that I ever had complete mastery. Uh, of course, I didn't. No one can. Uh, And this reached its apex uh, one night in the middle of the night when I woke my husband who was then two years ahead of me in medical school. uh, And I was in a state of panic crying. He asked me what was wrong. And I told him, I don't understand the pancreas. Well, it seems a little funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time. And this this feeling kind of followed me around. It had a name, but I didn't know the name then. It had been described a few years earlier in the 70s by psychologists at Georgia State, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. As an aside, there's a lot of uh, controversy about what they called uh, imposter phenomenon, uh, what we now call imposter syndrome. And in fact, there's a wonderful piece in next week's New Yorker magazine by Leslie Jameson exploring uh, the history of this. Anyway, I had not heard this term then. However, my best friend in medical school and I uh, did have uh, a name for ourselves. We called ourselves the asterisks. As in, we got into Johns Hopkins, asterisk, but there weren't that many applicants to medical school that year. And this is sort of the classic imposter syndrome thinking. Whatever you achieve, there's always a qualifier. You snowed them at the interview. Um, If you had just stuck around long enough on that service, uh, they'd have had time to figure out that you didn't know that much. Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. or the classic one, which is I'm here, but someone made a mistake. Now, as I say, um, uh, this followed me around for many years, but it did dissipate with time. However, it flared sometimes, uh, including when I saw this New York Times. Uh, op-ed in 2011. At this point, I was well into my career. Uh, And it was by a a female anesthesiologist and mother of four uh, who wrote, don't quit this day job. Her argument was that women in medicine who worked part-time, as I did, um, uh, are... uh, are not doing service to their patients, and are burdening their colleagues as well as the entire system. Not to mention, essentially, um, you know, taking money from uh, from uh, you know the government that uh, partially um, educated them. Uh, this really stung, and the accompanying illustration of veritable physician Barbie. Uh, vacuuming with her stethoscope uh, on her neck um, was salt in the wound. It irked me so much. I wrote uh, a reply in the Boston Globe pointing out that all doctors are part-time doctors and that all patients are potentially full-time patients. And that in fact, the fastest growing um, cohort of physicians who are cutting back their hours are older male uh, physicians. So how do you get over imposter syndrome? Well, one thing that doesn't work is to achieve more stuff. You think when you have this affliction that if you only get into that college, get into that medical school, match that program, Get that promotion, etc. You won't feel this way anymore. But in fact, it only throws gas on the fire because the more you achieve, the less adequate you feel. Um, you uh, you really can't fix an internal problem with an external solution, Uh, as the folks pictured uh, here will tell you, these are all luminaries in their fields who have spoken openly about their own imposter syndrome. And as I've often reflected, if Serena Williams is an imposter, there really isn't much help for the rest of us. Now, I have to confess to you that when I wrote this piece um, in the New England Journal, about those two things, the persistence of gender gap and sexism in medicine and my own imposter syndrome, I didn't put the two things together. Uh, it was my readers who told me, particularly readers uh, uh, who uh, who were physicians of color, women uh, practicing medicine in highly patriarchal societies abroad, uh, and members of other marginalized communities who told me, well, yeah, of course I feel like an imposter. I'm told I am one in large and small ways all the time. So one way of thinking about imposter syndrome is that it is internalized bias. And that got me very interested in learning more about, well, where were women at in medicine right now? Well, here's the short answer. Um, There's good news and bad news. The good news is that there are more of us, particularly at um, entry and junior levels. The bad news is almost everything else. And I'm gonna show you um, some statistics, uh, some of which may surprise you. They certainly surprised me. So uh, here uh, are um, percentage of applicants to US medical schools by sex. Uh, This and the slides following are from the AMC um, survey about women in medicine um, from 2019. Uh, When I applied, which is right at the beginning of this graph, men greatly outnumbered women. Now, uh, just as of 2018-19, women slightly uh, outnumber men, and that has persisted. As of 2019, women, uh, medical students, are in the majority um, uh, were in the majority for the first time ever. In some schools, such as the one uh, one of my kids attends, uh, they're in the substantial uh, uh, majority, 60-40 uh, at his medical school. Let's look at residency programs. Um, some of this won't surprise you. Uh, in OBGYN, 83% of trainees are women allergy and immunology, pediatrics, uh, child neurology, uh, dermatology. Uh, interestingly, internal medicine uh, is, is uh, and family medicine are not quite as female predominant as perhaps you might guess. Uh, specialties that are traditionally male-dominated, surgical subspecialties, ortho, uh, are still very male-dominated, though uh, women are increasing in numbers in those as well. So um, this is uh, applies to academic um, medicine, but I think the point will still hold uh, uh, across the board. Um, if you look at all faculty, um, Men outnumber women, but not by an enormous amount. Um, but here's where the rubber kind of meets the road. We are stuck as women at the instructor and assistant professor level. And in terms of promotion to associate and particularly to uh, to a full professor, we're kind of flatlined. So um, that's also true. If you look at division and section chiefs, majority uh, are still men. Uh, We've made some ground, but uh, not nearly as much as we would like. Uh, And this is medical school deans by gender. Uh, Since 2009, uh, this is in 2018, Since 2009, the number of female deans had increased one per year, not one percent, one, the number one, and still greatly in the minority. So here's a tweet by a young female physician from a few months ago that I think kind of says more than all those statistics. In 1993, 42 percent of entering med students were women. I was eight years old. We've said this a thousand times, but I still wonder where those years went and where those women are now. Why aren't they my bosses? In other words, the argument that, well, we just haven't been around long enough to achieve positions of power and influence uh, doesn't hold. We've been around plenty long, but we are stuck and why aren't they her bosses indeed? Well, here are um, a few answers, but I think a lot of it, uh, as you'll see, comes down to child care, uh, not to mention just outright sexism. Uh, this is from Annals uh, of Internal Medicine. Uh, women uh, have lower research productivity, fewer publications, we're promoted more slowly, we have lower salaries, uh, we have less access to um, mentors, less uh, institutional recognition, such as being chosen to be grand round speaker, present company accepted. Uh, And this is, I think the number that um, may underlie a lot of the other um, data which is that if you compare male uh, and female medical professionals in academic medicine, the women are spending—and this is this is in uh, male-female couples—the uh, women are spending a full extra day a week on childcare and domestic duties uh, versus the men. Those hours have to come from somewhere. And it means that for many years, uh, those 7 a.m. meetings, uh, those 6 p.m. meetings, uh, those meetings where you're networking um, uh, are simply not uh, available to you. And this was really uh, exacerbated by COVID because women are more likely to take time off uh, for disruptions in childcare, as opposed to male partners. So then there's harassment. Um, the incidence of harassment of female physicians is really staggering. One in three women um, and a higher uh, percentage for women who are members of underrepresented minorities. And this literally ranges from sexist jokes being told in the OR uh, to to, uh, actual uh, physical uh, uh, abuse. And um, what's uh, interesting and heartbreaking too is that um, women uh, experience um, a very high rate of sexism and harassment from patients in one study Uh, done um, uh, in the Harvard system of surgeons, 100% of surgical trainees, female surgical trainees, reported at some point experiencing what they considered uh, sexual harassment from patients. What, What kind of makes that even worse, though, is that, you know, we all have pretty broad shoulders. We know that Patients when they're sick and frightened uh, sometimes say stuff that maybe even later they wish they hadn't said. Um, And, you know, uh, we all uh, male and female shoulder a lot uh, in in this work. Um, But what really hurts is not feeling validated by peers. So that means that when you leave the room in which you've been rounding, and the patient has said something offensive uh, to a female physician, or even um, what you might not even consider offensive, such as calling her by her first name, um, uh, as opposed to the male physicians who are called doctor, which happens a lot. Uh, And, you know, the female physician may not want to correct the patient, but she sure would like to hear her male colleagues say that wasn't okay and that doesn't happen uh, nearly enough. And in fact, only half of female physicians feel safe reporting harassment and are more likely to just simply leave uh, than to report. Why? Because we all know that medicine is kind of a culture of a team player of of um, you know being tough of not complaining, and the person who reports harassment becomes a complainer, a non team player. Uh, this is just about um, this did not happen today. I am happy to report, uh, but you know these sort of you know micro uh, bias or micro aggression of speakers at Internal Medicine Grand Rounds if they're women uh, routinely being uh, being introduced by first name only. Um, I mentioned uh, the childcare crisis during COVID, Uh, not shockingly, uh, this increased the gender pay gap. Well, given all I've said, it's certainly not shocking to learn that female physicians are more likely to experience burnout than our male colleagues. And much worse than that, female physicians have higher suicide rates than male physicians or than women in general. This was um, tragically brought to light by the suicide of an emergency room doctor, Dr. Lorna Breen, Uh, in Manhattan at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, um, that's all uh, been um, uh, some difficult data that I've just shared. uh, And now I'd like to uh, share some somewhat more cheerful um, news. So this was a study done Um, in 2017, right before my piece in the New England Journal came out, uh, a letter to a young female physician. And uh, it showed that the Medicare patients of female PCPs had lower readmission rates and lower mortality uh, within 30 days of hospitalization, causing the New York Times to ask, should you choose a female doctor. The percentages uh, of of mortality difference were small here, but the numbers, it was a big study, it was over 30,000 patients, were large. And this caused many, including uh, myself, to speculate, why would this be? it's thought that maybe women physicians are more likely to consult, um, are um, uh, are more likely to admit that they don't know. Um, it's um, it's not clear, and that's just uh, speculation. But another difference uh, that showed up in the outpatient arena a couple years ago that I find really fascinating is this study from the Brigham. And what this group found is that female primary care physicians spend on average 2.4 minutes uh, per visit more um, per patient than our male colleagues. Now you may say, well, 2.4 minutes, that's not very much. Is that really uh, a big deal? Well, for one thing, if you stretch that 2.4 minutes out over a day, it's about 15% of uh, extra time spent in the exam room, which, if you're being paid on productivity, uh, could be a 15% uh, gender gap, which, by the way, is what the the uh, gender pay gap uh, is. Uh, I had um, occasion to ask Ashani Ganjali, uh, my colleague uh, who is the lead author on this paper, what are we talking about during those 2.4 minutes? Uh, And she said that we tend to spend more time um, uh, explaining tests um, and explaining diagnoses. uh, And we also, Spend a little bit more time on the extras, you know, looking at the prom pictures and wedding pictures and so forth. The other more recent um, information that came out, also uh, from a group here in Boston uh, in JGIM, is that women physicians are spending a lot more time on the electronic medical record than our male colleagues about 25% more, and we are getting about 25% more electronic messages from our patients than our male colleagues. Now, here's the question. Are we spending more time because we're getting more messages or are we getting more messages because we're spending more time? I don't know the answer to that, but I've thought a lot uh, about, about this question of sort of, gender difference in approach to patient care. Uh, And the way it kind of stacked up for me uh, was something I wrote about in the New England Journal uh, in 2016, and I called it The Doctor's New Dilemma, which was a a play on a, a, a George Bernard Shaw um drama from 1906 called the Doctor's Dilemma, which had absolutely nothing to do with what I was talking about here. Um, but you know, old English majors die hard. So here's the way I framed it. And this is a scenario that will be familiar to every clinician listening right now. Suppose a patient is waiting for you in an exam room, and you walk in, you're a little bit late, you're running behind. And the patient while they're waiting is reading a novel. And you can see the cover of the novel. You see the title of the novel. It's a novel you've read. It's a novel you have opinions about. And now you are at a crossroads. Do you ask them about the novel? Do you say, hey, I read that, what'd you think of it? in which case you have a chance to further your bond with that patient, and we know that um, that, uh, physician-patient rapport uh, has really uh, tangible effects um, on things like hemoglobin A1C and blood pressure and so forth, uh, not to mention being intensely gratifying for both patient and and, uh, clinician but it takes time and then you fall further behind, which makes you feel more stressed out, which makes you feel more burned out. Or choice B, do you pretend that you didn't see the cover of the book and you just press on? In which case you don't fall further behind, but you have a more existential kind of crisis which is asking yourself, why am I here if I am avoiding a deeper um, engagement with my patients? So do you engage and get burned out or do you not engage and get burned out? So here's my theory. See what you think. Um, And you can throw digital rotten tomatoes at me if you don't like it. I think, um, generally speaking, that um, I think, first of all, that women are not better doctors than men. They are not more empathic doctors than men. I have had many male physicians um, who are wonderfully empathic. Um, But I do think that women are more acculturated to ask about the novel and the baby pictures even if they fall behind, even if they're gonna lose money by doing so, and that men are more acculturated, not to ask, on average. And this is, of course, a great loss for all of us. And um, I think, just as an aside, um, this is a systemic issue having nothing to do with uh, men uh, or women or people of other um, genders and identities, which is that we seem to have constructed a healthcare system in which uh, clinicians and patients can't thrive at the same time. Their suffering causes us burnout and our burnout and disengagement and leaving. Adds to their suffering. We've got to do better. So clearly, we need to change policies, uh, and that involves doing a better job with recruitment, retention, mentoring, promotion, addressing the childcare uh, and family leave uh, issue. Uh, um, a um, uh, something that I'm very interested in uh, is what a poor job we're doing. Uh, accommodating female trainees um, who wish to uh, get pregnant, which some 35 years after I did it uh, with no accommodation and got preeclampsia and ended up with a five pound baby, uh, has not improved a whole lot. Uh, and, um, you know, maternity leave uh, and accommodation are still considered favors somehow during medical training. Uh, Not to mention physician mental health um, doing a better job uh, addressing harassment, which, yes, occurs at the most wonderful, enlightened places uh, like where you work, like where I work, uh, and pay equity. But we also need to change the story. And um, social media, uh, for all we um, for all there is to dislike about it, um, has actually done some good uh, things in changing the story. Some of you may recall the origins of the Looks Like a Surgeon campaign. This was a cover of the New Yorker in 2017 for female surgeons. um, And this uh, uh, drawing was reproduced by female surgeons all over the world who posted their female teams um, on uh, Twitter with the hashtag looks like a surgeon? And then there was hashtag MedBikini. For those of you are not familiar with this campaign, here's what happened. Um, a couple years ago, uh, the Journal of Vascular Surgery posted uh, a pre publication online version of an article. Uh, in which researchers took a look at the personal social media accounts of surgical trainees, and they found to their horror that there was lots of unprofessional behavior being exhibited on private social media accounts. This unprofessional behavior consisted of things like expressing religious beliefs, uh, political opinions, and wearing bikinis. So Carmen Simmons was a fourth year medical student, um, uh, pictured here with some of her classmates, uh, decided to uh, fight back by starting the hashtag MedBikini uh, campaign on Twitter, uh, where where, uh, physicians, male and female, uh, were encouraged to post pictures of themselves in bathing suits. It raised the whole question of what, professionalism is that's a big catchword right except what does it mean uh is it really a, a kind of a, a cover for sexism and racism uh is it really about what sort of hair and body uh, and jewelry and clothing are okay in medicine um and you know who gets to say that well uh the piece Uh, in the Journal of Vascular Surgery was pulled. It never made it into print. So um, it was um, a pretty successful campaign. My own personal favorite hashtag medbikini was on Instagram. Uh, This is an emergency room physician uh, in Hawaii uh, who was wearing a red bikini uh, when a a man got hit by a boat uh, and she saved his life on the beach. And then perhaps uh, this is unexpected, but I think uh, medical humanities can be really helpful in changing the story. Uh, I'm uh, privileged isn't even the word uh, to describe the joy I get um, reading and writing uh, and talking about uh, literature and the arts with uh, my colleagues. Uh, You know, how, nourishing is it uh, to learn that Elizabeth Blackwell, the first uh, female graduate of an American medical school, uh, struggled um, with sexism and with many of the same uh, kinds of questions, uh, including are women uh, more empathic doctors uh, than uh, men? This is something that uh, she and her colleagues were arguing about 150 years ago. Um, And uh, Rebecca Lee Crumpler, the first black female uh, graduate of an American medical school who uh, unsurprisingly faced uh, racism. And then we can so much, I think, deepen our relationship uh, with our patients, particularly our female patients by reading uh, the literature Uh, of women uh, and illness, such as Audre Lorde, uh, the uh, great feminist, um, lesbian uh, poet uh, and essayist uh, who um, died of breast cancer. Uh, While um, she was being treated for uh, cancer, uh, she wrote, women have been programmed to view our bodies only in terms of how they look and feel to others rather than how they feel to ourselves and how we wish to use them. We're surrounded by media images portraying women as essentially decorative machines of consumer function, constantly doing battle with rampant decay. I do not wish my anger and pain and fear about cancer to fossilize into yet another silence. She used her cancer as a political act Uh, and implicitly invites us uh, 30 years later uh, to consider doing the same. And then, speaking of imposter syndrome, it's nothing new. Uh, Long before we were calling it imposter syndrome, uh, William Carlos Williams, the physician and poet in 1921, uh, wrote about his own, uh, what we would call imposter syndrome. Uh, he writes in Le médecin Malgré Lui, uh, which means the physician, in spite of himself, oh, I suppose I should put my journals on edge instead of letting them lie flat in heaps, then begin 10 years back and gradually read them, etc. Something that, um, even though we now uh, accumulate our unread journals digitally, um, uh, something that we can all relate to. And then finally, I think that what will help is discussion uh, and um, understanding uh, that uh, some of the uh, shame we feel, uh, some of the internalized bias that we feel uh, breeds in isolation. Uh, And I know that what has helped me tremendously is to speak with other physicians, uh, male and female, particularly uh, young female physicians, uh, as I toured uh, with my book around the country and abroad. Uh, I hope uh, that my book spurs that conversation. I hope this talk spurs that conversation. Uh, And now, Um, I would like to take the time we have left to open uh, the floor up to questions and comments.
0: Wonderful, Dr. Coven, thank you so much for that compelling talk, and I'd invite our uh, attendees and listeners to post any questions you have in the chat. just a, i i had a, a couple of questions i was intrigued by your comments about the uh, time spent per encounter the 2.4 minutes extra that female physicians tend to spend with their patients and uh you mentioned that a lot of that is uh spent with the the extras quote unquote some of the the you know things about the person's lives and i know you have examples in your book of where that ends up making a really impactful uh difference on the encounter and the relationship with the patient you have a a story, for example, about uh, a shared interest in pens, really nice pens that ends up uh, changing how you and a patient get along. But it, it led me to wonder, does, does this impact your documentation? So if you're getting a little bit behind, um, how do you uh, how do you manage that in terms of uh, what you're writing? I'm saying that in part just because I'm so curious about how you approach documentation in your notes. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, as a writer, are they are they more literary? Are you including these uh, extras in your notes about your yeah. patients and tell well, me more about that?
1: Well, it's become more challenging. With um, do you guys use Epic? Yes. Right. So it became more challenging uh, when we adopted Epic about five years ago, um, and in fact, I wrote a piece in Stat about this. That Epic, ironically, since of course Epic, Canto, and Haiku are all literary terms, uh, which seems like a bit of of cruel humor, um, literally disarticulates the narrative. It breaks it down into a problem list. Uh, So that I don't know about you, but when I um, when I read an epic note, I often have difficulty figuring out what happened to this person. Um, And in fact, I said I I joked, although it's not that funny, but uh, I joked that if you um, if you tried to tell the story of Cinderella in epic. You'd have to like break it into a problem list like poverty soot inhalation you know family discord etc but you'd never know what happened in terms of what i do what i the way i got around it was i told as much of the story as i could under the social history tab um and i told my colleagues go in there you're going to find some good stuff but it wasn't but it wasn't perfect and it got much harder hmm.
0: Thank you. I I have a couple of questions that were also posted here. So one listener says, sometimes it seems that my colleagues who are most threatened by my success are fellow women in roles near or just ahead of me. Also, I note that often the PAs in our clinic seem to be more eagerly to more eagerly support the male physicians, almost as if they're their personal secretaries and enable their entitlement around doing less EMR work in favor of cramming in more productivity. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on your experience with other women and how we can better lift each other up?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, look, I mean, we're all swimming in the same sexist sea, right? So we're not you know we're not any any different uh, than the rest of society, which is, you know there is systemic racism. And there is systemic sexism as well. There's also a kind of scarcity mentality that uh, that is part of the culture of medicine. You know, um, a, a story I tell in my my book is um, is that uh, after uh, getting a bad grade on an anatomy exam, I uncharacteristically called my mom to cry. And she said, "You know, the reason you feel this way is that all one hundred and ten of you, sit in the same lecture hall all day when you're scattered all over the country you won't feel this way anymore and i think there is that scarcity mentality if this one gets praise if this one gets a promotion if this one gets this then i can't get it when in fact i mean and this is actually true by the way in writing and publishing i i tell people you know if everyone i mentor ends up being a successful physician writer, we still won't have enough. If everybody I mentor ends up being uh, a great PCP, we still won't have nearly enough. Uh, and um, as far as, um, as PAs and NPs, there is a certain tension now um, uh, between the NP community and the female physician community. Any of you who are on the closed Facebook groups, uh, for like physician moms know about this, um, you know it's um, uh, you know it's it's I think a real systemic concern. Having said that, individually, um, I have not found this. I have I have found my female colleagues incredibly mutually supportive, and I have found my PA and NP colleagues incredibly mutually um, supportive. Uh, so, you know.
0: Here's another question which goes back to what we were just discussing that time with patient that time for the act the extras and uh, somebody asked. So wh- which is better and how do you balance that? Do you make a um, should you engage in some of those uh, gender specific expectations or is it better to actually be down to business and ignore them? What, what is your approach?
1: So this is so fascinating. So Elizabeth Blackwell. Uh, and her colleagues were having this conversation in the mid 19th century. And the conversation then, it was in slightly different language, but it went like this, which is, should we claim to be more compassionate because we have maternal qualities, or should we uh, claim to be completely equal and indistinguishable from men? And it seems to me it's kind of a a losing proposition, either way. The way I think about it is this Um, you know, my observation has been that when women, particularly young women in medicine, are especially skilled at what we call the soft skills, and everybody knows what we mean by that. You know, the girly skills. They tend to denigrate it as, yeah, but everybody's good at that. What's really hard is knowing the coagulation cascade. But the truth of the matter is everybody isn't good at that. And if you don't believe that, ask patients. Because what patients will tell you is they assume you know the coagulation cascade, or you know how to look it up if you need to? What they're really worried about is that you won't listen, that you won't, you know fully receive their story, that you won't call them back, um and so forth. so so uh, I think um, I think one place to start is realize, that if you have these skills and whether you have them because you're female, I, I would I would never venture to say, I suspect not, but if you have them and you are female, don't say to yourself, well, yeah, but that's nothing. Everybody can do that. Everybody
0: can't do that. I Love that, thank you. Another comment here. Uh, Thank you so much for this talk. I'm working on writing stories about how patients have changed me. I mm-hmm. found this talk fascinating. As a female med student, resident, and now attending, I've certainly witnessed and experienced sexism, mm-hmm. less so in each setting. Not sure if things are changing or it happens less with stature. And I, and <clears throat> I wanted to add a question on there. Do you, have you found that with your change in stature, have some of the Uh, sexist comments, some of the microaggressions. Has that changed for you?
1: Well, I mean, there's no question. um, There's no question that, you know. If you're the med student holding the retractor in the OR, um, you're going to, uh, you're more likely to be harassed um, than if you're the surgeon, you know, the attending surgeon. Uh, and i I often get a little pushback from uh, young female physicians who say to me, "Well, it's okay for you to be so outspoken. You know, what do you what have you got to lose? You've already had your career. Um, so so there's 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 no question um that you become a little more untouchable as you go along. But that's by no means, um, Uh, always true. And in fact, uh, there's the intersection of sexism and ageism, which is especially acute uh, for women, uh, in which older women are considered invisible and dispensable. Uh, And uh, um, I think the other thing, um, what I've observed about myself, is that um, I've experienced less sexism as I get older, but I'm more aware of it when it happens. When I was younger and it happened, I, I was too afraid to even acknowledge that it was happening because once I acknowledged that it happened, you know i I, w- I feared I'd fall off the boat right? You know, so instead, what I told myself is, Isn't this great? That I'm part of this club. You know, I I tell the story in the book of of. um, uh, Reconnecting with an old residency chum who was black and comparing his experience back then of racism with my experience of sexism. Uh, And what he. what I said to him was that I'm a little ashamed in retrospect that I um, I so readily uh, accepted a system that had so little regard for me in many ways. And he said, no, you're wrong. They loved you and they loved me because we made them look good. But we also knew that it wouldn't take much to fall out of favor. And that's why we had to be perfect. And so, you know, did I ever turn down that extra admission? I did not. Was it because I was so ambitious? No, par- not partially. It was because I was afraid. Uh, could you write a letter to young female physicians? treating female physicians as they would want to be treated as they were a female physician. I'm not sure what the um, what the second uh, qu- uh, question, part of that question is, uh, uh, could I write a letter to a young male physician? You know, um, uh, Dr. Powell and I were talking about this before um, uh, before uh, the talk. Uh, I feel like I kind of did. Uh, I was telling him that my publisher and I had a, a lot of discussion about whether uh, my book was um, was misnamed uh, because there really isn't a whole lot, I say uh, in the book uh, that would apply uh, to men, and um, many men, many male readers have told me that. Having said that, I would not presume to write um, a book to myself letter to a young male physician.
0: <laughs> well, Dr. Cohen, we've reached uh, the top of the hour. We want to thank you so much for this very engaging presentation, uh, your work and uh, your leadership in this area and being a, um, an inspiration to so many. And uh, I I want to recommend to all our listeners to read the book, uh, buy it. If you're like me, you'll pick it up thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll read an essay or two and then having to look for a chair so that you can sit down and get more comfortable as you dig in and then. uh, Taking your daughter to swim that same night, but sitting in the car and reading the whole time and then getting back home and just continuing to read into the night until you finish the thing. It's so engaging and I would say there is so much in there, um, not just for uh, us feminists, but also just for the whole experience of going through medicine, engaging with patients. It is rich in wisdom and experience and. uh, Totally recommend it for everybody.
1: Well, thank you for those very kind words. If you do buy it, please buy it from your independent bookseller, um, such as
0: Powell's. Our wonderful Powell's books. Yes, thank you so much. All right. And, um, and that'll wrap it up for today. Be sure to bring, join us next week. We'll have Catherine Brown Saltzman. She's the uh, co-director and co-founder of the UCLA Health Ethics Center. She's going to join us for the Boyden Lectureship to talk about hope. So we hope we'll join us next week. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.